Good morning and welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you chose uh, to join us this morning, uh, braving the very, very cold morning. Uh, Minnesota weather, we are glad that you are here. Uh, there are lots of famous lines, famous lines that you know of, lines in our culture that maybe you, you know, but you have no idea where it comes from or maybe even where it is found, but they're just part of our natural uh, words that we use and phrases that we use here in our language. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the first line. I want you to tell me if you know what comes next. So uh, famous line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Anyone know what comes next? It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, etc., etc. That's from the tale of two cities. Probably know this line, maybe not the second. What about this one? Four score and seven years ago. Okay, a few more people know that one. Right? Our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. That's from the Gettysburg Address. What about this one? Don't stop believing. Did anyone sing it? Tyler sang it. Hold on to that feeling. Street light people. I don't really know what that means, street light people, but that's, that's how it goes from the famous journey song. This morning we're going to look at maybe the most popular verse in the entire Bible. Whether you're a Christian or not, you probably heard of this verse. You've at least heard of this reference. And what we're going to see this morning is that uh, the verses uh, continuing after this are equally important, even though John 3.16 gets all the, all the press. So John 3.16, unbelievably popular. It's all over the place. It's people put signs up in, in sporting games and at concerts. Uh, people wear it on their face, and it even shows up in uh, The Simpsons as well. So today, uh, we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of John. John was one of Jesus' disciples, and he's writing his eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and his miracles, his ministry, teaching, and death and resurrection. Today, we're going to look at John 3.16 and the following verses after that. And the title of our sermon today is, The World Might Be Saved Through Him. And we're going to see that not just John 3.16, not only is that verse vital and central to the Christian faith, which is why it's so popular, but we're also going to see how the rest of the passage, the next verse coming right after it, and the few following help us understand the core of the Christian faith, the core of the gospel. So let's read our passage. It'll be up here on the screen. It's also on the inside of your worship folder if you'd like to follow along. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So what's led up to our passage here so far, Jesus is is speaking to this character named Nicodemus. So Nicodemus is uh, a very um, uh, respected 
a popular uh, religious leader. And so, so far, Jesus, he is getting very popular. He's, his, his fame is spreading. He's doing things that only someone from God can do, miraculous type things, yet he's coming in a very unexpected way. People are wondering, is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? But he's coming in a very unexpected way, kind of uh, he's, he's out in the wilderness, or he's uh, not uh, leading in a, in a very military type way or in a political type way. And this guy, Nicodemus, he's a religious leader, and he's very intrigued by Jesus. If kind of spoil the end of the story, but later we see Nicodemus actually does become a follower of Jesus. He, he finally does believe, but here at this point, he's just intrigued, and he is a, a religious leader that is wondering uh, who this Jesus character is and has questions for him and comes to Jesus by night. And right before our passage here, Jesus responds to Nicodemus uh, and, and, and tells him that even though he is, you know, a religious leader, even though he knows the entire uh, Hebrew scriptures, even though that he's respected and he is very successful, Jesus tells him that, Nicodemus, you are insufficient in and of yourself. You need to do something that is impossible to do. You need to be born again. You must look to the Son of Man lifted up on the cross for your salvation. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he cannot save himself despite his hard work, his reputation, the family he was born into, his religious role, his brilliance, his notoriety, his hard work, or his near-perfect law-keeping of nearly every rule that God gave the Hebrew people. So that's what happened so far in our passage. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be saved. Even you, Nicodemus, even the, the, the person that so many Jewish people look up to as the pinnacle of what the Hebrew faith looks like, Jesus tells him, you're not in. You're guilty. You, you must be saved. Christians are always talking about being saved, right? You've, whether you're a believer or not, you've heard that, I'm sure, a lot. If you're not a Christian, you might be wondering, why, why do Christians always talk about me being, uh, needing to be saved? They ask, are you saved? And you might be wondering, well, what do I need to be saved from? I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm independent. I'm self-sufficient. There's no real danger out there that I need to be saved from. My mama raised me really well. I'm, I'm confident. I'm successful. And Jesus is speaking to a person just like that. Nicodemus, who, who in his hard work and in his, his uh, family that he grew up in, and the religion, and through his job, he thinks he's doing pretty well. And Jesus is speaking to him, saying, Nicodemus, I know you're a religious stud. I know you're a role model. I know if there was a, a first century Jewish Time magazine, you would be person of the year. You'd be on the cover. Yet, you still need a savior. You need to be saved. There's something wrong. You are uh, in trouble. And you need a salvation. Jesus flips the table and he says that all humanity is found guilty. Our default position is actually guilty, not innocent. It's also the good guys, the heroes, those at the top of the social or religious ladder. It's Nicodemus who need to be saved, not just the sinners, not just the scumbags, not just the poor and the evil. Everyone is found guilty. Everyone stands condemned. We saw that in our passage today in, in verse 19. This is the judgment, Jesus says. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So Jesus here is calling himself the light. We're going to see this throughout uh, the gospel of John, that Jesus describes himself as light, as, as light incarnate. And when he comes into the world, he's saying he will be constantly rejected. Rejected again and again and again. As the light comes into the world, people hate the light. They love darkness more and reject Jesus, the light. So whoever hated Jesus, whoever rejected his message of grace, whoever was disgusted by his association and friendship with, with losers and dirty people and sinners, the worst of the worst, they would rather stay in their darkness than come to him and be purified by his light. And in doing so, they confirm their judgment. Guilty. Condemned. We as humans, we love darkness more than light. And this kind of makes sense, right? We, we think, well, of course, bad people, they, they do bad things in, in secret. They do bad things at night in dark alleyways. So it kind of makes sense. But Jesus is going beyond just saying that sinful, evil people love the darkness. But he's saying that Everyone in our sin, we run away from the dark, from the light and towards darkness. And, and we, like Nicodemus, can think that Jesus here is just speaking of the worst of society, the sinners, the, the, the evil people, those over there who don't believe. But this is not just for those who don't believe. Even those of us who are Christians, we see that this is still like something we wrestle with constantly in our life until Jesus fully comes back and fully removes all the sin from our lives in this world, this is still our temptation. This is Satan's plan. He actually tries to keep us in the darkness. Again, now I'm speaking to Christians specifically. It's obvious for people who don't believe, but even for Christians. In the Bible, Satan is given uh, the names of both tempter and accuser. Satan wants, his plan is, he wants us to run away from our Savior, away from the light, away from forgiveness and towards darkness and guilt and shame, right? So this often is, is how it plays out. We're, we're tempted, right? We're tempted from, with our own sinful nature and the enemy tempting us. We, we, we think, well, it's not that big a deal, this particular sin, or it's, I've had a really hard week, or I deserve this, or maybe, maybe just this once, or no one's going to know, or it's not going to hurt anyone. And after we give in to that t temptation, after we sin, then Satan comes, as, comes at us as accuser. You call yourself a Christian and you did that? What would happen if other people found out? What would happen if that dirty sin, that dark sin, that private sin became public? What would people think of you? They would hate you. You'd be rejected. No one would love you. God is so disappointed in you. He's embarrassed by you. He'll get you back for this. You're going to have to work really, really hard to show him that you're sorry. You're going to have to work really hard in order to show that you are changing. So Satan starts as accuser, or starts as tempter, moves to accuser, and then we fall into more shame. We stay in the darkness. More sin, more shame, more fear, and we give up. Right? This is describing your life in, in any way, and, and most of us, if not all of us, would raise our hands and say, yes, this has happened in our life. We, uh, when we fall into sin and shame, we try to hide. We, we pull away from Christian community. We don't confess this sin to 
others. We try and hide from God because we're full of shame. We're embarrassed. We're terrified of our failure, of our sin, and being exposed for who we really are or what we have done. And we wonder, man, if people really found out what I did, what would they say? What would they say about me being a Christian or being a community group leader or being a parent or being someone that people look up to? Or maybe you really do hate your sin. Maybe you're really broken over it. And we see how our sin hurts others, hurts ourselves, dishonors our Savior. But until that sin has been brought into the light, we think, oh, well, I'm already dirty. I might as well keep on sinning. Maybe we feel just completely uh, defeated and give up and want to just keep sinning. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For, whoever, uh, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Now if you know anything about Jesus' life, who are the people that show up uh, around Jesus? Who are the people that move to, towards the light? Of course the bad guys are going to, to hate the light they're going to hate the guy that confronts and shows up and calls them out on their sin. But if we look at Jesus' story, who are the people that hated him? Who are the people in the story that hated the light? It was actually the religious. It was the powerful. It was those who were the influencers, the self-sufficient, the royalty, those who were self-reliable. Those are the ones that when Jesus, the light, showed up, hated him and rejected him passage continues down in verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And who were the people that did come to the light in Jesus' story? It wasn't the powerful. It wasn't uh, the, the religious. It was actually the sinners. It was the broken. It was the people that everyone looked down uh, in society, the people that everyone looked down upon. Which then shows us, as it, uh, verse 21 ends, that it must be carried out by God. So people being drawn towards Jesus, it was not the people that you might think, the people that were successful or good or moral or religious. It was the sinners. It was the broken. And a miraculous work of God, of the Holy Spirit, changing the hearts of evil people, they came to God. It was the sinful, the broken, the hopeless, the guilty, the unclean, it was those people who loved the light and who were drawn towards Jesus. And as we see what Jesus is sharing towards Nicodemus, there's shocking news here. Maybe shocking news that we, because we're familiar with this verse, or maybe just because we live in a different culture. But the shocking news that Nicodemus is hearing here is that Jesus is not just saying, Nicodemus, you're not perfect, or you have wickedness in your heart, or you're evil. But he's saying that he stands condemned. He is guilty. And the sentence that he is receiving is just too much for him and for us to bear. Jesus is showing Nicodemus that the due penalty for his sin, for our sin, is not just, and this is, this is big, it's not just he was going to be ceremonially unclean for a few days. Or not just that he had to say a few prayers to get forgiven. It's not just that he had to go to the temple and buy a dove or a goat to sacrifice to have his sins 
forgiven. It's not just that he had to do something in the law in order to have his sins removed. But Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he's guilty and that his sentence is death. The sentence he received was was not just physical death, but one that is both spiritual and eternal. So as we continue to kind of ask questions here, what are we saved, or, or why do we need to be saved? Because we're guilty. We stand condemned before God. What are we saved from? We're saved from spiritual death, death that is eternal and physical. Jesus says, whoever does not believe is condemned already. Whoever does not believe is already condemned. They're already deserving of of eternal death. They will perish. We're guilty. We've been judged. We're sentenced. We're doomed. Romans 6 says that for the the wages of our sin is death. What, What you earn, what I earn, what we earn, our salary for being sinners is death. It's perishing. It's physical. It's spiritual. And it's eternal. And it's not a fun doctrine to talk about, but Jesus speaks more about eternal death, more about hell, more about perishing than any other character in the New Testament. So if all you know of Jesus is that he was some pacifist type person that loved the outcast and that was, you know, wore a robe and was kind of hippie-like, that's just part of his character and who he was. He also spoke more about eternal consequences and condemnation and hell than anyone else. And here in our passage, eternal life, which Jesus brings, is contrasted with eternal death, with perishing, with hell. Or as 2 Thessalonians 1.9 describes it, those who don't believe, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. And so we don't know exactly what eternal punishment, we don't know exactly what hell will look like. Some of the language in the Bible is probably symbolic. Um, and so we can kind of, you know, are there real flames? Is there is real darkness? What does it exactly look like? But we do know it is eternal. It is punishment. It is death. Here in Second Thessalonians, it's a great description. Uh, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. For forever, we're going to be away from the greatest being imaginable, from our creator. The, the one thing that we were designed to desire more than anything else in this world. And this doctrine of hell, it, it's not a fun doctrine. So Jesus telling Nicodemus and telling us through John 3 that receiving judgment and being condemned and having spiritual and physical and eternal death This is not a warm, fuzzy doctrine. It's not a doctrine that we really love and that we really champion or want to think a lot about. Yet, it is a good doctrine. Jesus teaches it. And although it's hard to to receive, it's actually a great doctrine. And it's, you know, praise God that it's true. Let's talk about that for just a second. It's not something we like to talk about or, or want to talk about and our emotions often Uh, really bristle when we ever hear about this idea of hell and eternal punishment. The reason, one of the many reasons that the doctrine of hell is a good doctrine is because a good and just judge. So if God really is judge of the universe, if he really is all-powerful, if he really is good, then he will punish evil. 
He will punish evil. He won't overlook it. Uh, theologian, he's a Croatian. His name, uh, a guy named Miroslav Volf speaks about, so he's uh, a professor at Yale. He's, his family's from Croatia, and he speaks on this. He says, it's, it's, it's only in a very affluent, comfortable, safe uh, location would you ever not want the doctrine of hell. If, if, if you live in a war-torn country where your parents have had their heads cut off, if your brothers and sisters have been raped, if there's no justice, if, if all you see is the bad guys winning and winning and winning and doing unspeakable evil, for a God that won't punish evil, that's horrible. And so he argues, speaking to the West, that in general is quite affluent and, and safe and there's lots of flourishing. He says, most of the world, most of human history desires that God will punish evil because evil surrounds their life. Evil is everywhere. And evil is always winning. And so it's good news, actually, that God is a good judge and he will punish evil. But you even think about it right now, like this was persuasive years ago, but our, our culture has gone through a lot the past few years, right? With the murder of George Floyd, uh, with the Capitol riots just a year ago. I mean, we, as a culture, we uh, strongly value justice, right? We're no longer okay with certain sins being overlooked, right? Millions of people marched, millions of people posted, millions of people voted and did, you know, all different kinds of stuff to say we need justice. There needs to be justice. And so uh, maybe just a few years ago, we wouldn't have wanted evil to be punished as a culture, maybe as much. Now we're even understanding that there needs to be justice. There needs to be punishment for evil. A bad judge doesn't punish evil. But we have a good judge in our God. And we want a, a good, righteous judge, one that's not corrupt. If you read a lot of the Old Testament, uh, there's many, many warnings against judges taking bribes or people who are uh, powerful just overlooking sin and not caring about um, the, the innocent. And so we have a good and righteous judge who's not corrupt. The doctrine of hell is that God is perfect, he is righteous, he is good, and he will judge fairly and rightly. And even if you don't believe, even if you're not a Christian here, our, our just culture wants this. Our culture desires this, right? So even if you don't believe in Jesus, we think, uh, in, in general, that karma kind of rules, right? That bad people will get what they deserve, and that good people will get what they deserve, right? Or, or we just even say that the universe will kind of work things out. So whether you're a Christian or not, we desire that there is a good and righteous judge out there. Whether it's Jesus Christ, whether it's karma, whether it's the universe, it's what we want. Not only that, but, but God describes himself and God is a just judge. A, a judge that will give the correct punishment for the penalty. So, so not revenge, not escalating violence and violence and more violence, but we want or we won't get a full and true justice in this life. And many of us have had, had experienced that. Whether it's someone who has hurt us or abused us or taken advantage of us, and, and we'll never see justice for that. Whether it's just we look at the news or we look in the world or in our family or in our, uh, where, where we work in our neighborhoods and we see just bad guys winning and, and uh, unjust things happening. As, as, as Christians, we know that they that the, in the end, 
God will right all wrongs, that he will uh, bring justice and punishment against those who are evil. And not only that, but eternal death, because of our sin, is good and true and just because we're sinning against an eternal, infinite God. So maybe we like all that other stuff because, you know, there's lots of bad guys out there in the world and we want them to be punished. We get why there should be justice, yet we still think of ourselves as not that bad. Many of us are tempted to believe, okay, I I get why they should be punished. I get why they should go to jail or even they should deserve hell, but I'm not really that bad. We're often tempted to believe that our sin is, is not as bad as others or, or not really deserving of sin, or sorry, of punishment. We might be wondering, but is our sin, is my sin really that bad? And remember who, Nic- or who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to Nicodemus, a person who in his life, I mean, he has hardly any sin, you know? He's, he's a guy that people look at him and they can't find any fault within him. This is who Jesus is speaking to. And if you know uh, one of Jesus' parables, the parable of the unforgiving servant, Jesus teaches us, teaches all of us, including people who have not broken many rules, who have not broken many laws, who, who seem like really good people. In this parable, Jesus teaches that all of us have an un, uh, or an infinite amount of debt against our creator. And if you, you know, if, if, if you don't know that parable, you can go back and read it, but essentially Jesus is teaching in this parable, we think that we're okay, but we actually have a debt against God because of our sin against him that is infinite, that we can never repay. And so that might not make sense for some of us, right? We might be thinking, okay, I know I've cheated on tests. I know in my heart I gossip against people and I have some hatred. I know I'm not perfect, but is my sin really infinite? Does it really deserve an eternal punishment? Why not just, you know, a couple centuries in purgatory? Why not just, you know, maybe a lower level of heaven, if that's, if that's a thing? Why do I really, why, why is hell eternal for, for, for someone like me? And the reason why, even though it's still kind of hard to understand, the level of the offense is based on who the sin is against. The level of offense is based on who the sin is against. Sinning against other humans is wrong and does come with consequences and hurt, yet sinning against God, who is infinitely greater than any human, comes with an infinitely greater consequence and hurt. Right? If I, if I step on a spider and squish it, no big deal. Right? Most of you. There's maybe a couple of people who love spiders here that are saying that's the worst. But step on a spider, not that big a deal. Okay? You kill a dog, most of us will say, ooh, that's, that's not cool, dude. If you kill a human, right, even, even greater, you're going to go to prison for the rest of your lives. You kill the Queen of England, I don't know, that's probably way worse. I'm trying to, maybe bad analogy, right? The, the, the same thing, killing a living being, whether it's a, a plant, then a spider, then a dog, then a human, right? We, we see that the sin against, uh, the, the, the level of offense the, the right punishment changes depending on how much the thing is worth that you sinned against. So Jesus teaches us that our debt is unpayable because we have sinned against an infinite, perfect, and holy God. The level of offense is based on who the sin is against. So let me give you a, a real-life 
example of this, and I'm being sarcastic here. So there's an actual person highlighted by an Instagram account. Maybe you're familiar with it. Kind of like Preachers and Sneakers, if you know about this one. But there's an Instagram account that's called Prophets and Watches. And so what this guy does is he takes pictures of, of famous prophets and pastors and apostles who have late night television shows that ask you to send in money and they'll pray blessings over your life. Um, and so in this Instagram account called Prophets and Watches, there's this guy. So he's a prosperity gospel prophet named Guillermo uh, Maldondo. His home's all over the world, and he has a watch. This might be hard to see, but he has a watch that's worth $162,000. I didn't even know that that was possible. But, so he's got a $160,000 watch, and then uh, and here, me in a similar pose on my own late night uh, <laughs> televangelist show. Um, I'm obviously not doing as well as him, because my watch, might be hard to see, is only worth uh, $25. So... If this is true, if you sin against both of us by spilling coffee onto our watches, right, the same offense, my watch is ruined, his watch is ruined, because the, the two different watches have two different values, the consequence of that sin is very, very different. So let's say you spill watch, or you spill coffee on my watch, I might even thank you because it forces me to get a better watch, but if you spill coffee and ruin his watch, the consequence of that is quite different. The punishment for what you owe, 25 bucks here, $160,000 there. And it's, you know, I know this is a silly example here, but it's similar with God. In order for us to be forgiven, or uh, in order for, for um, someone, in order for me to forgive someone who sinned against me for, for breaking my $25 watch, is going to be much different than something that has much, much greater value. So sinning against our creator and God, who is infinitely more powerful and beautiful and worth more than us, more holy, the consequences are going to be infinitely greater. And that's why in Jesus' parable, he, he teaches us that we have an, an infinite debt against God because of our sin, something we could never repay. And that's the point of his parable. All right, last thing. You still might be asking, okay, I'm starting to get what you're saying here, but isn't God love? I'm, I, you, might, you might be saying, I don't know a lot about God, but I know that God is love. I know Christians say God loves. God is a forgiver. I, I remember you just read the very first few uh, verses that you just read in today's passage says that God loves the whole world. So doesn't he save everyone? Doesn't love win out in the end? Doesn't everyone get forgiven? Right? God so loved the world. He loved the world, not just Christians. Right? Verse 17. That the world might be saved through him. Right? But the rest of our passage reminds us that whoever doesn't believe stands condemned already. That's what verse 18 said. So aren't all saved? Doesn't God love the whole world? Didn't Jesus come not to condemn? And uh, of course, that is, there we go. Of course, that is true. Jesus did not come to condemn. When he came into this world 2,000 years ago, he didn't come to condemn us because we were condemned already. As verse 18 reminded us, we, we, we stood guilty. Yet, 
Jesus will return in his second coming as this good and just judge that we're talking about earlier. The second Thessalonians passage that we read, that last verse, a few verses prior to that, starting in 7, says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So yes, yes, Jesus does love the entire world. He does, and he came that those in the world might be saved. Yet, he is also a good and just judge who won't overlook sin, who won't just forgive all as if uh, he can just overlook our, our, our sinful hearts and, and what we have done. So yes, Jesus does love the entire world. Yes, he did die for all humanity. His salvation is available to all that is only sufficient for some. His salvation is only sufficient for those who repent of their love of darkness and turn to the light, of those who put their faith in him, of those who know God through belief in Jesus, those who obey the gospel, as 2 Thessalonians 1 said, by trusting not in, their, in themselves, but in Savior Jesus. 2 Peter in the New Testament says, uh, the Lord does not delay his promises, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's heart. That's God's heart for you. That's God's heart for the world. He does not want any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's patient. He says today, now is the day of salvation. He tells you, hey, you're still alive. You're still breathing there's still a chance for you. If you're still alive right now, that he has patience towards you. He wants you to believe. See his patience as kindness. But this won't last forever. We will all die one day or Jesus will come back and you will not have an infinite amount of opportunities to believe, to respond. Jesus also teaches us, in Matthew 7, he says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, that leads to perishing, that leads to hell. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So Jesus teaches us both are true. Jesus loves the world, yes. He died for the world, yes. And yet many, many will still reject him. And Jesus is the way. Verse 17 in our passage today said that we are saved through him. Believe and don't be condemned, he offers us. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, he reminds him that even the best still stand condemned before the judge of the universe. Their debt is infinite and they can never be repaid. The judgment has been passed. We all love darkness. We all love our independence and our self-sufficiency, and being our own God more than the light. And we are deserving of eternal death, and we will perish physically, spiritually, and eternally. But, as our passage begins today, but God so loved the world, it doesn't stay that way, that whoever, or that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him 
won't perish, won't go to hell, won't die and experience eternal death, but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. Again, we all, or many of us, know this verse so well. But the, the, John 3.16 begins with, For God so loved the world. This word so does not just mean very. does not just mean God really, really loved the world. He so loved the world, as we might say. But this word so means in this way. For God Almighty loved the world in this way. This is how we know God loved the world. He loved the world especially, specifically, in this way that he gave his only son. There's this great uh, lyric in a, a famous hymn, maybe you've heard it, uh, called How Great Thou Art. There's this line in it that says, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. I remember singing that song just a few months after my first son was born and just being like destroyed by this. Now, now me personally having a son and then being able to emotionally just begin to, to scratch the surface of how it might feel to choose to give up your son. And then recently, my wife and I had another uh, son born uh, super premature, four months early. And we had to experience this many times. We had four or five, you know, experiences where we really did think my son might not, or my son, not, not just my son might die, but my son probably is going to die. We had to walk through the grieving process of he, he might not make it through the surgery or this infection. The doctors are speaking as if we need to prepare for him to die. And it was in those moments, I was reminded of this verse, John 3.16. I was reminded of this, this line in how great thou art. And when I think that God did not spare his son, instead sent him to die because he loved us, I, scared, I, I can't even understand that. I can't even take it in. And this is just, you know, human love. But if, you've, if you're a parent, if, if you love someone deeply, if you've gone through anything kind of similar than this, if you lost a loved one, think of those emotions. Think of that experience. God the Father did not just do this because he had to, because his arm was twisted, but because he loved you, he chose to give up his son. He chose to send his son to be executed, to be tortured, to be ripped away from him. God loved us in this way that he sent his only son to die so that you and I might not have to die. God the Father chose this, which should just blow our mind. That's God's love for you. That's God's love for me, for us, is that he loved us so much and displayed that love in that he sent his son to die. Whether you're a Christian or not, this is what happened. It's true. This is the reality of what it means that Jesus came into this world and was, he lived a perfect life and he was executed for our sake. And now through belief, through trust in Jesus alone, not through you being a good person like Nicodemus, or part of a good family, or not being as bad as all the scumbags in this world, but through faith in Jesus, we don't get hell. We don't get judgment. 
We don't get condemnation. We don't perish. But we receive eternal life. Many of us, three years ago, would have felt quite invincible. Many of us, three years ago, two years ago even, would have just said, hey, well, yeah, I know we all die, but I never think about it. I'm pretty young. I'm pretty healthy. I've got some money in the bank. I've, I've got insurance. I've got family that can help me out. But with the pandemic, I mean, with the past two years, we've all been forced to just acknowledge the reality that we're going to die, that we are not invincible, that uh, our health is not perfect, that we are not strong. And in many ways, we are very vulnerable. And death will approach us someday and maybe even soon. But the good news of our passage today is that death doesn't have to win. Death won't win if you put your trust in Jesus. This is what he offers us. Jesus took on condemnation so that through belief in him, you can be forgiven. You can be made innocent. Jesus died so that you can live, live spiritually, live physically, live eternally by trusting in his work on the cross. Jesus paid the infinite debt that you owed so that you can be set free. Jesus was punished so that you can receive mercy and be saved. Jesus spent hours in darkness hanging on the cross so that we might be free of the power of darkness in our lives and be able to live in light and approach light. Jesus was judged and executed and separated from God so that through faith we would be declared innocent and not separated from God but brought near to him. Through the gospel, through faith in Jesus, we don't get condemnation. We don't get death. We don't get punishment. In exchange, what we do get through faith in Christ, through trusting in this, we get eternal life. We get life that will never end in the presence of our Savior, living alongside our our God the being that we were created and designed to get the most amount of flourishing and and pleasure and joy from. We get freedom from the punishment of our sin. We get victory over being enslaved and imprisoned to sin and death. We get a great high priest who intercedes for us and gives us his innocence. We get a Christian community to live with now and for eternity. We're going to wrap up with one more New Testament passage that describes this whole thing, describes John 3.16 in kind of similar language. Titus 3, 3 through 6 says this, For we ourselves were once foolish. Speaking of Christians, or maybe you right now, if you don't believe yet, this is describing your state apart from Jesus. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Or to use today's passage's language, we are lovers of the darkness. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. We're not saved because Jesus saw a bunch of really impressive people and he came into the world to save them. 
We're saved not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He had mercy on us. We were guilty, but he showed us mercy. We had an unpayable debt, but he showed us mercy. We're on the, the, the wide road that leads to destruction in hell, but he showed us mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So believe that today. Believe that for the very first time, that regardless of how bad you are or how good you are, you are on the road to destruction. You're on the road to hell. But you don't have to stay there. Jesus offers forgiveness. He offers new life. He offers eternal life by just turning from your own pride, your own self-sufficiency, your own, hey, I'm pretty okay. I don't need anyone. Just turn from that and turn to the cross. Turn to Jesus Christ who died so that you might have life, might have forgiveness. And not just life right now, not just hope right now in this life, but eternal life in paradise with him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this good news, this, this great news that's very clear, very specific. Sometimes we see lots of symbols and, and whispers of the gospel here. We see it very clear. And you're speaking to us today. You're telling us, believe, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. So I pray for those here in this room that haven't believed yet, help them to see the good news of the gospel. Help them to believe. Give them faith. And as the end of our passage today said, may, them, uh, may us all then boast that you are the one that saves, that God is the one doing the work. Because who comes towards the light? None of us do. We all run from the light. We all love the darkness. And God, we pray for those in this room who do believe already. God, we pray that again and again we would be just wrecked and blown away by your great love for us. God, you, you loved us not just by giving us a warm house this week or giving us good food or giving us friends. All, all those are good gifts of you. But this is the main way, the ultimate way that we know that you love us. God, you loved us in this way. You sent your son into this world to die so that we wouldn't have to die, so that we would have life and life eternal. Help us to believe that. Help us to celebrate that as we sing, as we take communion, as we uh, go into our weeks this week, we pray that uh, just make that beautiful and powerful and joyful to us, we pray.